morning, church. I'm excited to be with you this morning. The message that I've prepared for you really comes from my heart. Uh, but before I share it with you, I just want to take a moment and uh, acknowledge our worship team, and in particular, my good friend Justin Kalama, who did such a great job of leading worship this morning. So can we give our worship team... Thank you, Justin. As we uh, begin this morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Our central passage, the focus of our message, will be from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And there we find the writer to the Hebrews saying this, Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God." This is a very important passage for us, and as we begin exploring its implications, I want to invite us all to take a moment and note today's date. Today is January 26, 2014. Circle it on your notes. Write it down. Make a mental note. Remember it, because my expectation is that some of us will leave our time together this morning changed forever. Actually, I'm feeling a little bit bold this morning, so let me intensify that. My prayer, my hope, my expectation is that all of us will leave today marked in a significant way, that we will leave here today with a renewed faith, with a renewed hope, with a renewed love, with a renewed sense of purpose, and with a renewed vision for the work that God has called us to as His children My hope is that we'll leave renewed because we will recognize very simply that God is calling us, that God is calling us to do His work. God is calling me and God is calling each and every one of you. The question very simply this morning is this, are we listening? Are we listening? Let me clear up a potential misunderstanding right at the outset. Nobody is here this morning by accident. Nobody is here by chance. You see, God in His infinite wisdom and providence has arranged for each and every one of us to be in this room this very moment to hear this message because He is calling us. I believe that today, for all of us, is a day of decision, that today is a day of recommitment. And so I invite you to open your ears and to have this morning what Jesus calls ears to hear and eyes to see. But before I go any further, before I develop the message further, I just want to invite you to bow your heads, open your hearts, and to pray with me for our time together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray for our time together this morning, and and Lord, we submit our time to you. We submit our hearts to you. Lord, we ask that you, you, through your Spirit and through your Word, would speak mightily into our hearts, Lord, into our lives, Lord, I pray that we would be receptive, that your word would would penetrate our inner being, Lord, and that we would leave today with a renewed sense of purpose as your children. 
And I pray these things, we pray these things, Lord, in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. Many who are here this morning are not aware of this, but the first Tuesday night of the new year, in the middle of the opening worship set, uh, Justin Kalama, who led us in worship this morning, uh, one of our Tuesday night worship leaders, shared for us a window into his own heart. In opening that window for us, he shared with us what God has been stirring in his soul. He communicated very simply that this year in 2014, God is calling him to be fully invested spiritually. And and as he stood on this very stage in this very place and exhorted our Tuesday night congregation, the exact words that Justin spoke were these, I know that God is calling me to be all in. I know that God is calling me to be all in. And he then explained how he and the other worship leaders from Tuesday night that day had been exchanging text messages. And as they were exchanging text messages, they all acknowledged um, a certain sense that they had, a kind of building expectation that God was stirring something in our midst, that he is presently at work stirring something. As, As they exchanged text messages, they began to punctuate their text messages with a hashtag, this hashtag all in. Now let me tell you something that Justin and the other worship leaders did not know as they shared that word, as he shared that word with our Tuesday night congregation that evening. Justin didn't know that that very same Tuesday, that very same morning uh, in our pastoral staff meeting here at Hope Chapel, uh, those of us who are on the pastoral staff fell into a very long-spirited discussion about the future of our church, about direction, about vision, all essentially boiling down to this idea of being all in, of being all in as a worshiping church, of being all in as a praying church, of being all in as a loving church, a loving community and body of believers, being all in as a Bible-breathing church. And as we hashed out vision it became very clear very quickly that as a staff, as a group of pastors, all of our hearts were knitted closely together and shared the same vision for, for the future of, of this church. And as my dad led us in that conversation and staff meeting, at the end of it, he concluded it by going around the table and asking each and every one of us sitting around that table, are you all in? Are you all in? Are you all in? And each one of us responded, yes, I'm all in. Yes, I'm all in. Is it a coincidence that that very night, Justin, leading worship, opens a window into his heart and uses that same language, not knowing the conversation that we had had earlier that morning? I mean, maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe. But I don't think so. You see... I was sitting right back there worshiping that Tuesday night, and when I heard Justin exhort us in worship and use those words, my heart jumped. My heart jumped because God has been stirring inside my heart a a deep desire to see God move in a new way. My heart is heavy to see revival in an otherwise dark South Bay. 
my heart is heavy to see God move and raise up a generation of reinvigorated believers and new believers who are excited about leaving the things of the world behind, who are excited about Jesus, who are excited about the things of God, and who are excited to live the Christian life, even and especially in this present cultural climate, which is so diametrically opposed to it. You see, I've had this vivid picture in my mind, and I can't shake it. I have this picture in my mind of this building once again packed to standing room only. Look around. There are empty chairs. And where some would see that as a negative, I see that as a tremendous opportunity. I see tremendous opportunity for God to bring new people into this church and reconcile them to Him. So I have this picture of a whole new harvest of believers who have their hands raised to heaven, who are abandoning to, abandoned to worshiping God the Father with their whole hearts because of the work of His Son Jesus in the power and through the presence of His Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, I can't shake this picture of God doing a new work in our midst, of a new harvest of people hearing about and responding to the gospel. This picture of people meeting Jesus, being changed and experiencing new life. Right before the new year, I preached on the necessity of spiritual rebirth, the necessity of having a new heart, new year, new heart. And the very next week, my dad preached on the fact that God is doing a new work in our midst. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. The Bible is God's revelation from creation to new creation. And from, the, from that creation and that point of fall, he is progressively redeeming and making all things new to the point where there will be a new creation. And so I have this picture of a reinvigorated, vibrant church filled with people who are hungry for Jesus Christ, not a timid people, but a bold people, not a defeated people, but a victorious people, not a lost people, but a found people. And I believe with all my heart that God is at work this very moment, this very morning, stirring us up to begin doing this work for His good pleasure. Now please understand, I am not claiming that this picture is prophetic. But I will tell you that I can't shake this picture. I will tell you that when I lay in bed at night, I think about it. And when I wake up in the morning, I think about it. And when I pray and spend my devotional time with the Lord, I think about it. I think about a great revival in our midst. Perhaps I can't shake this picture because very simply, it represents a very deep hope inside of me. I, I hope that this morning my deep hope will be shared by you and it will become our deep hope. My hope is that this new and extraordinary harvest happens not just here in our church, not just here at Hope Chapel, but also in all of the other churches in the South Bay. Maybe as God stirs a new work here, other churches will look to our example and be inspired. Can any of you picture what I'm talking about? Does what I'm saying resonate inside any of us? Do we want to see God move in a powerful way? I'll tell you what, I absolutely, positively, 100% believe that it is possible. I absolutely, positively, 100% 
believe that it is possible because it happened in the original Jesus movement around Galilee 2,000 years ago. It happened in the book of Acts. It's happened repeatedly throughout history. It happened in the great revivals and the great awakenings. It happened in the Jesus movement of the, of the 60s and the early 70s, from which our very church was born out of. It's happening now in many parts of the world. I'm talking about a super abundant harvest. And so my question is, why not here? And why not now? It's important for us to recognize this morning that to get to that place, to get from where we are this morning to that place sometime in the future, we must all realize that God has called us to spread the gospel and to make disciples. That he is presently calling us. That like Justin, he is calling us to be all in. To be fully and wholly devoted to him. Not with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. No, with both feet in. With both feet in. Totally, completely, unambiguously, unequivocally, unmistakably in. All in. Some of you might think that this sounds a little bit extreme. I'm sure that there are some people in this room who are thinking, I cannot believe Pastor Mike is up there saying these things right now. This sounds totally unrealistic for our age. You might think that it sounds totally unachievable. I understand. I've thought those things before. But now, I disagree. With everything that's in me, with every fiber of my being, I wholeheartedly disagree. It's neither unrealistic nor unachievable It is a simple matter of faith. It's a simple matter of faith. After all, this book tells us that with God, all things are possible. And I want to call us to remember something this morning. I want to call us to remember, to always remember that there is power in the gospel. You see, God doesn't expect us to produce life-changing power as his messengers in this world. He doesn't expect it to come from us innately, and I want to prove that to you, and so I want to invite you to to read and follow with me on the screen from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. He continues to expand and elaborate on that. And he, and he draws conclusions in chapter 2 saying this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so let me make this all very simple. God has done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the work. He is presently preparing hearts. He is calling people to Him. He has written the message. He has simply asked that we carry that message. He doesn't expect us to be innately powerful, to be overwhelmingly persuasive in and of ourselves because His work and His message have all the power. He just calls us to deliver His message all in. It's true that some will reject that message when we deliver it as foolishness. They might even think that we are foolish for delivering 
that message of Christ crucified. But I guarantee you, as surely as some will reject it, some will receive it. Some will receive it. Those whom God has prepared will receive it. And they will praise God for our faithful delivery of that powerful message for the rest of eternity. And we will live for eternity rejoicing with them. So who are we going to be like? Are we going to be like the disciples whose faith fell apart in the storm when they crossed the Sea of Galilee with Jesus? When Jesus looked and said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? It's true that the disciples started out in that place. The disciples started out from a place of little faith. But the good news is that God can work with that. God can work with us starting out from places of little faith. He calls us from that place. But the disciples didn't stay there. They went all in. They followed Jesus and eventually became the 12 apostles. So what is it going to be this morning? Is it going to be, oh, we of little faith? Or is it going to be, yes, Lord, we trust you. We are all in. I don't think that it is improbable for God to move mightily because I hold here in my hand a divinely inspired and providentially preserved compilation of historical documents that together form what we call the Bible. And this Bible records account after account of men and women just like us who responded to God's call on their lives having no idea what was realistic or where their response would take them. But they responded. They responded. At some point they made the decision, yes, Lord, all in. And these men and women, as imperfect and flawed and sinful as they were, responded by faith. They believed God, and thousands of years later, today, we remember them for their faith. In fact, their faith speaks directly into our very situation this morning. God used their faith, God used their belief to prepare the way for He Himself to come and dwell among us 2,000 years ago in the historical person of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And so my question is, like those great heroes of faith, will we be all in Because I shared that picture with you. I have that picture of a whole new generation of believers who are committed to serving willingly and giving generously and walking obediently and loving freely and shining brightly. I believe that that starts with us today. The Bible is absolutely full of men and women like this. It refers to them so eloquently as the great cloud of witnesses Their lives tell the stories of men and women who started all out and maybe at some point were marginally in. But although they started all out, they finished all in. I think of men like Abraham, a pagan who was called by God to leave his land and his family and his belongings and everything behind. And when God called him, he went. And though he was flawed, he became the father of an entire nation. He was given a new name. He was given countless descendants and he became a spiritual forefather. At some point, Abraham decided all in. I think of his son Isaac, who willingly laid his life down on the altar when his father Abraham was commanded by God and tested by God. And though no sacrifice could be found, when Abraham called, Isaac submitted and laid on the altar prefiguring Christ himself. He was all in. God spared his life. I think of Jacob, 
who learned what it meant to be all in, he wrestled with God and would not relent until God blessed him. At some point, Jacob was all in. I think of Joseph, who was the runt of the litter, but became the source of salvation of Israel in the midst of a great famine, who sold as a, was sold as a boy into slavery by his brothers, and later in his life had the opportunity to confront his brothers when the circumstances, when the tables had turned. And rather than cursing them for selling him into slavery, he said, what you meant for my harm, God meant for good. Because Joseph was all in. 500 years before Christ, the Persian king Artaxerxes sent a man named Nehemiah, an exiled Israelite who was a trusted official, to return to Jerusalem to help rebuild the, the temple walls. And there Nehemiah faced intense opposition from the peoples in the land and encountered great disunity in Jerusalem. But despite that opposition, despite the obstacles he faced, he rebuilt the walls. He overcame the threats that he faced by exercising wisdom, by taking defensive measures, by personal example, and by obvious courage. You see, Nehemiah did what God had put in his heart, and Nehemiah found that the joy of the Lord was his strength. I think of Job, a a man whose life is an honest portrayal of God allowing a good man to suffer. God allowed Satan to test Job's faith, to sift Job, but believing that God is good despite the apparent evidence to the contrary, Job rested in faith alone. He rested in faith alone and in the depths of his agony, in the depths of his pain, in the depths of his loss, in discomfort, in brokenness, he could still proclaim, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, God vindicated Job's trust in him, proving that genuine faith, the faith of someone who is all in, cannot be destroyed. I think of Esther, who was a woman of courage and wisdom, appointed for such a time as this, who God set out and marked out and called to put her life on the line to save God's covenant people, to save the Jewish people in a time of threat. Sensitive to the needs of her people, she put her life on the line and God did use her to save them. I think of Daniel who was thrown into the lion's den for praying in plain sight despite knowing that it would be a threat to his life. All in and God gave him the great prophetic vision that was a precursor to Daniel's or to John's revelation. I think of Samson who despite his failure with Delilah chose to die all in fulfilling his role as a judge over disobedient Israel. I think of Elijah who was who defended the worship of God over the false god Baal, who who raised the dead, who called down fire from sky and was taken up in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. I think of Isaiah who heard the call of the Lord to judge obstinate and disobedient Israel in a time when Israel was so far away from the Lord and so obstinate that they were least likely to hear any kind of rebuke. But God said, who will... Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will go prophesy against Israel? And Isaiah heard that call and said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. I think of Jeremiah, who was similarly called to prophesy, who was tempted to hold the word of the Lord inside, but said, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in the Lord's name, There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. 
and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. I think of the 12 disciples who illustrate for us the great authority with which Jesus calls persons to become his disciples and the absolute obedience and commitment with which those who are summoned must answer his call. Those 12 men learned what it meant to be all in. I think of Stephen, the young man who was stoned for his gospel witness. And even during his death by stoning, he was praying for the men who were killing him, praying that God would forgive them, praying for their salvation. As he's being stoned, Stephen, a man who was all in. I think of the Apostle Paul, who started as a man named Saul, who was there to witness the stoning of Stephen, who was an ardent persecutor of the church, and on his way to persecute the church even more on the Damascus Road, was confronted by the risen Jesus himself, who called him, why are you persecuting me? And he was given a new name, and he was called to Christian service, and he responded, and he went all in, and he wrote half the half the letters in our New Testament. And for the last 2,000 years, Paul could never have predicted. People have been reading his writings, divinely inspired in the New Testament, and coming to faith in Jesus, all because at a certain point he was called and he answered. And Paul decided to go all in. I think finally of John, the last living apostle, when all the others had been martyred. John was exiled in his old age on the island of Patmos and there received the revelation from God, the final book that's recorded in our New Testament. But without exception, all of these men and women first decided to answer God's call. They first decided at some point, no matter what the cost, I am all in. I will follow. I will answer. Hebrews chapter 11 chronicles the great hall of faith, enumerating even some of these figures. And as the writer of the Hebrew begins to to chronicle this great hall of heroes of the faith, he first defines that which they operated by. And he says, faith is the, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. At some point, these men and women responded to God and believed his promises. They had an, an assurance of the things hoped for and a conviction of the things not seen. And the writer of the Hebrews continues and tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He then chronicles these great heroes of the faith, supplies their examples, supplies their testimonies as an encouragement to us. And as he draws to concluding that chronicling, he says, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of all the rest. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets who by faith accomplished this and obediently did that and essentially were all in. Clearly, at least I believe, that there is a precedent in Scripture to respond to God's call, to live by faith, to believe God, to, like Justin has said in past weeks, to live all in. The question is, the question is, how do we do it? What does it take? How do we live like these heroes? And I want to bring you back to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, because chapter 12 gives us 
that great hall of faith. And chapter 11 does. In chapter 12, a conclusion is drawn. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, let us likewise, let us in the same way, let us like them also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. God has called us. He has set a race before us and he calls us to run it with endurance, with perseverance, but not alone. He's called us to run that race, keeping our eyes fixed on who? On Jesus. Jesus, who has done all the heavy lifting. Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured a Roman cross, who despised the shame associated with that cross and is now seated victoriously at the right hand of the throne of God, assuring our victory in that race if we respond and go all in and persevere. You see, as God worked his grand plan through these men and women, he was glorified through their lives. They lived lives that were worshipful. They lived lives that were meaningful. They lived lives that were sacrificial. And each and every one of them was used in some way to prepare the way for Jesus or after him to prepare the way to him for those who would believe. And while I've already said many things this morning, let me be absolutely clear about this one point. Jesus is the superhero. Jesus is the superhero. Jesus is our definition of all in because Jesus held nothing back. It's only because of Jesus' saving work that we're even able to be all in. As a matter of fact, it's only because of Jesus' saving work that we're even able to talk about to recognize the idea of being all in. Jesus is our necessary precondition. You see, this book, the Bible, is the record of God's initiative and our response. God's initiative, of course, began with creation. The first four words of this book are, in the beginning, what? In the beginning, God did something. In the beginning, God took initiative. In the beginning, God acted. And we never surprise God because God always makes the first move. Before we existed, God took action. Before we decided to look for God, God already knew us. The Bible is not about us trying to find God, but about God reaching out to find and save us. I believe that God has demonstrated initiative in these two ways. He has spoken and He has taken action. And when I say that God has spoken, I, say that he, I mean that He has revealed Himself through creation and he has revealed himself through specific people at specific times as recorded in his word. And when I say that God has taken action, I mean that the Christian message is not simply a pronouncement that God has said something. It is even more importantly an affirmation that God has done, has accomplished something, ultimately in and through Jesus. God has taken the initiative in both of these ways because it's what we need. It's not just enough that our ignorance of God is fixed by his revelation of who he is. We are also born sinful and in opposition to him. And so he needed to take action to save us from that sinfulness. You see, Christianity is a religion of salvation. 
And the fact is that there is nothing in any of the non-Christian religions to compare with this message of a God who loved and came after and died for and called a world of lost sinners. He accomplished all of this through his son Jesus. So Jesus, Jesus is the culmination of God's initiative. He is the key to understanding what it means for us to be all in. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews calls us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. If you want to be all in, the starting place is very simple. Follow Jesus. So God has spoken. God has taken action. The problem for many people is that this is very simply where they remain. It's easy to think about what God has said and what God has done and leave it in the past. But it needs to come out of history and it needs to come out of Scripture and it needs to come into our life, into our experience. And so God's, our response to God's call is simply this, we must seek Him. Our response to God's call is simply this, we must seek Him. As a matter of fact, God's main frustration with us is that we don't seek Him. Psalms 14 verses 2 through 3 say that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Good news always begins with the word but. But Jesus promised, seek and you will find. In Luke 15, we observe Jesus telling three parables to illustrate this point. The shepherd searched until he found the lost sheep. The woman hunted until she found the lost coin. The father was on the lookout constantly for his lost son. And so my question is, why should we expect? Why should we expect to seek any less? God desires to be found, and he has called us to seek him. And he has promised that if we seek, we will find so we might ask, what does that mean to seek Him? How must we seek Him? Well, first, we must seek Him seriously. If we're honest, I think many of us would realize that there is a need to repent of a natural laziness, an apathy, and maybe a malaise that has fallen over us. And we need to give our hearts fully to seeking Him. Hebrews eleven six says that God rewards those who kind of seek Him earnestly, earnestly seek Him. And so we must seek Him seriously. We must also seek God humbly. We must be willing to admit that our minds, being finite, cannot possibly discover an infinite God on their own. You see, we depend on God to reveal Himself. We need His revelation. And we must seek honestly. We can't truly seek God with our minds made up about who he ought to be, about how he ought to act, about what he ought to say. You see, we need to be honest about how he has revealed himself. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And finally, I believe that we must seek God obediently. This is, of course, the hardest condition of seeking to fulfill because in seeking God obediently, we need to not only be willing to submit our minds to who God reveals himself to be 
and how He reveals Himself, but we must also be willing to submit our lives obediently as His children. If the Christian, the Christian message has moral implications, and we need to understand that, that if the message is true, the moral implications need, as a consequence, necessarily to be embraced. And so I think this is just some of what it means to be all in, to seek God seriously and humbly and honestly and obediently. Natural questions, of course, begin to emerge at this point. Do I need to quit my job to go all in? Do I need to move to a distant land and become a missionary? Do I need to sign up for one growth group every night of the week and also attend all four weekend services? Do I need to stand on a soapbox on the strand and preach the Bible to everybody who passes by? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some may, in fact, be called to these kinds of tasks. But while some of us might be called in these ways, most of us will not be. And so I have some questions to further answer and help us tease out what it means to be all in, to begin approximating an idea of what it means to be all in. And we can simply start with this one question. Do I love Jesus? Do I love Him? Do I see my need for Him? Am I thankful for what He has done for me? Do I hunger for God's Word? Do I enjoy it? Do I have a desire to submit my life to it? Am I learning to identify and hate and put to death my sin? For those of us who are married, do I want to love my wife? Do I want to respect my husband? Does it trouble me that many of those who are around me are perishing? Does my life spread the aroma of Christ in my home, in my neighborhood, in my workplace? Here's one that's been stirring inside of me. Do I have a passion for souls? Do I have a passion for the lost? Am I hungry to share the good news of Jesus Christ? I think questions like this help us determine if our lives are on the trajectory to being all in. One of our elders, Bruce Bailey, who's, who's sitting with us this morning, recently um, had a great conversation with me about evangelism, and we were uh, talking about our hearts for evangelism and, and different ways of evangelizing, and he recommended a, a fantastic book for me to read, and I've been reading it in, in recent weeks. It's written by a theologian named Michael Green. It's a scholarly work, a study of evangelism in the early church, and I want to read to you a quote from that book that I thought was very profound. It moved me. Michael Green says this, The enthusiasm to evangelize which marked the early Christians is one of the most remarkable things in the history of religions. Here were men and women of every rank and station in life, of every country in the known world, so convinced that they had discovered the riddle of the universe, so sure of the one true God whom they had come to know that nothing must stand in their way of passing on this good news to others. They did it by preaching and personal conversation, by formal discourse and informal testimony, by arguing in the synagogue and by chattering in the laundry. They might be slighted, laughed at, disenfranchised, robbed of their possessions or their homes, even their families, but this would not stop them 
They might be reported to the Roman authorities as dangerous atheists and required to sacrifice to the Roman imperial gods, but they refused to comply. Because in Christianity, they had found something utterly new, utterly authentic, and utterly satisfying. They were not prepared to deny Christ even in order to preserve their own lives. And in the manner of their dying, they made converts to the faith. What was the secret of their zeal? What drove those first Christians to be all in? On the basis of his research, Dr. Green identified three main motives. He identified three main motives that that these early Christians functioned with a deep and profound sense of gratitude. Gratitude for Jesus. Gratitude for his redeeming and atoning work. And this sense of gratitude compelled them to share with those who were lost around them, even at the risk of their own lives. These early Christians functioned with a deep and profound sense of responsibility to follow Jesus with integrity. They they were the first-hand beneficiaries of his life and death and resurrection, the first-tier beneficiaries of, of the gospel of God. And as they received that gospel, they were driven by a great and profound sense of responsibility to live that gospel out with integrity. And finally, these first Christians were driven by a great and profound sense of concern for those perishing around them. In a culture full of religions, in a culture full of gods, they were convinced that there was only one way. They were convinced of the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And they were concerned for all those around them that they would not find the way through Jesus. And so driven by a great sense of concern for those around them, they were eager, even at the expense of their lives, to preach and proclaim and share and gift to those around them the good news of Jesus Christ. I've reached a point in my life where, by the grace of God, I get to stand up here and teach the Bible at Hope Chapel. And I just want to tell you that I love to teach the Bible, and I want to take this moment to thank you for the opportunity that you, each one of you gives me to stand up here and share the message of this book with you. There's nothing I would rather be doing with my life. But I need to say that I am not the only person in this room that is called to serve God's kingdom and to see it expand. Each and every one of us is just as much called to that task also. We are called, called by the one true living God. And so what will our response be? Will we fill our lives? Will we fill our hearts with everything but that call? Or will we answer it? Will we seek God? Will we be all in this together? I recognize that there are many sitting in this room this morning who believe that they are living all in. And perhaps some of you are hearing this message and thinking, um, this is mildly offensive. I am living all in. This doesn't really apply to me. Just humor me for a moment. It seems to me that there's a danger in that kind of a self-assessment. You see, if any one of us were to challenge a friend or a colleague to assess, for example, the sin of pride in their life 
and that person concluded that they were not prideful, then we would immediately think that there is a pride problem present in them. Look how humble I am. I'm not prideful. Look how all in I am. I don't need to hear this message. And so I believe that all of us, myself included, need to assess ourselves this morning soberly. We need to assess our lives and our commitment and our response soberly. Are we a worshipful church? That's not a trick question. Yes, I believe that we are a worshipful church, but we can worship more passionately. Are we a praying church? Yes, we are. But we can pray more fervently. Are we a Bible-breathing church? Yes, but we can delight in God's Word more fully. Are we a light on the hill here in Hermosa Beach? Yes, but we can evangelize with greater urgency. Are we a church that is a family? Yes, we are, and I'm thankful to have grown up in this family. But we can love one another even more sacrificially. I believe that these are all natural consequences of living all in together. How do we get there? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, let us likewise, let us in the same way, in the same manner, following their example, lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and run Hope Chapel with endurance, the race that is set before us as a church family. And we will run this race keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus because He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And if He, as the founder and perfecter of our faith, For the joy that was set before him endured a Roman cross and despised its shame and is now victoriously seated at the right hand of the throne of God, then we can answer his call. I've had an image hanging on my wall in my office. It was passed down to me by my dad. He's had it in his office for 30 years. And it was given to him in his early days here when he came on staff at Hope Chapel. I want you to take a moment and just look at that image. There are two ways to obey God. To use the language that we're using this morning, I might say that there are two ways of answering God's call. And most of us, introspectively, most of us know which of those hearts is representative of ours. I don't have to explain it. You just need to look at the picture and you know which one is representative of yours. Some of us are like David. Others of us are like Saul. If your heart is like Saul's, if it's half-hearted, I have good news for you. Because of Jesus' saving and redemptive and transforming initiative, there is no reason why we cannot all together answer God with our whole hearts. All in. Jesus said that there are two ways that we may tread. There are two paths we may walk. There are two paths. There are two ways we may go. The broad way or the narrow way. 
There is no third option. You see, part of the scandal of Jesus is that he calls those who would follow him to be all in. To be half in is to not be in. To be wholeheartedly in is to be all in. The men in this room will appreciate this illustration. One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. I recall watching that movie as a younger man, especially as I was preparing to participate in a sporting event. Maybe I'd watch it the night before to get really amped up and fired up. There are some very epic, inspiring monologues in that film. But there is this one moment in that film where William Wallace, is played by Mel Gibson, is rallying a motley band of very simple peasant soldiers to stand the line on their battlefield and face a very formidable and prepared and trained and deadly opposing English army. And he calls to them and asks them, will you fight? And one humble peasant says, no, we will run and we will live. And he turns to those men and he said, fight and you may die, run and you may live, But lying on your beds, dying many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that day for just one chance to come back here and tell those enemies that they can take our lives, but they will never take our freedom? He was calling them to be all in, to be fully committed to the task at hand. And I could ask you the same question this morning. Choose this day whom you will serve. Which heart is it going to be? Because lying on your bed many years from now, would you be willing to trade every day between this day and that day for just one chance to come back here in purpose before the one true God And before his son, Jesus, who is risen and ruling, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will live the rest of your life all in for his sake. I know that even as I say that, and even as I offer that challenge, there are some here this morning who remain skeptical, dismissive, and unmoved. And so I have a quote that I would like to share. This quote was recorded by John Piper in his book, hunger for God. And he said this, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. All in. All in. It doesn't matter what is in the past. It doesn't matter where you have come from. It doesn't matter how much you have sinned. It doesn't matter what is behind us, because today we all have the opportunity 
to reaffirm or to answer God's call, to make a decision, a decision between you and God. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will we be like Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Will we be like Isaiah who said, here am I, Lord, send me. So will you join Justin? Will you join me? Will you join the pastors here and the elders? And will you join that great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us? And will you take a step this morning to live completely and totally and exhaustively all in for Jesus? Because I believe with all my heart that if we do that by faith, we will stand in this room worshiping together one year from now absolutely amazed at the unfathomable work that God has done in us and through us. Humble servants, willing servants, seeking servants, all in. God's call demands a response. So I'm going to close now, but I'm going to ask that if God is working on your heart, if the Holy Spirit is working on your heart this morning, I'm going to ask you to respond and take a stand. And so if God is working, I just, I'm just going to ask you to stand up and I'm going to pray for you. All in. All in. All in. Lord, I pray for your church. Lord, I pray that you would ignite, reignite in us a passion for your word, a passion for the lost, a passion to follow you and to do your work here on this earth. Lord, I pray that Hope Chapel would continue to be a light on the hill. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do a great work in us and through us. Lord, I thank you that you will continue to do a great work in and through us. I pray a blessing on this church, a blessing on this family. And Lord, most importantly, may we be a blessing to the surrounding community and a source of glory to you. I pray these things in the name of your mighty, majestic, holy son, Jesus. Amen.